are you doing? Hello. From deep cuts to future classics. On location and behind the scenes. Somewhere between reasonable and crazy. It was no more complicated than that. Let's skip intro and find out what to watch on Netflix. Coming up. That's all they need to do is work out the temperature that COVID doesn't survive and they just make the cinemas that temperature. My wife turned to me and said, oh, he's just like you. Uh-oh. I was like, wait a minute. Don't say that. I've walked out two films in my life, Honey 2 and The Tree of Life, and I stand by those choices. <laughs> I don't believe we've met. What's your name? Hello, everyone. Dottie here with your latest episode of What to Watch on Netflix. As we slide through genres like a teenager's DMs in lockdown, this week we're heading over to a subject very dear to our hearts at Netflix. It's one that's really blown the conversation around streaming platforms versus traditional outlets wide open. Yep, it's time to grab a 10 quid box of popcorn, tut at people that can't last 90 minutes without going to the toilet, and feel threatened by a 12-year-old who won't get off their phone. We're off to the movies! Well, we're actually not going anywhere because that's the whole point of Netflix. Am I right? They're here! You having a good time? Lined up to discuss all things film are some titans of film journalism. As the host of The Crown's official podcast, Edith Bowman is no stranger to a Netflix podcast herself. Aside from that, she's one of the UK's most respected broadcasters whose love for film has seen her go from making mixtapes for Emma Stone and interviewing the world's biggest stars to creating Soundtracking, a brilliant podcast series dedicated to the songs, composers and musicians that bring film to life. Edith, welcome. Yo! Hello. So nice to see you. I know we're kind of, people can just hear us, but I can see you on the, you know, the kind of technology based visual platform. I don't know if we would like to say the name, but yeah. It's, <laughs> it's so nice. It's nice to see faces that aren't blood relatives at this point. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else will do. And next up, Robbie Collins is one of the most respected film critics in the country. His take on films in the Daily Telegraph have the power to make or break a film. His thoughtful critique may not always be welcome, but it always comes from a place of knowledge and passion for film. He too gets FaceTime with the greats, but doesn't let them off the hook in person either. Just ask Joaquin Phoenix. Robbie, please be gentle with us. This, this makes me sound like an absolutely terrible person. Um, I could like to reassure listeners right now that I am genuinely quite nice. Well, unless you're talking to him about Jojo Rabbit, but we'll ask for yeah, another well, day. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> Some movie makers do fear you, so I'm only giving this the, the gravity it deserves, Robbie. Fine. Okay. Well, look, it's kind of a compliment for a critic, so I shall accept it. Thank you. <laughs> and finally, joining Edith and Robbie is journalist and film critic Hannah Flint. Writing for Variety, GQ, BBC Culture and Total Film, amongst others, Hannah is almost as passionate about championing female filmmakers and important stories as she is about arguing over the minutia of every comic book adaptation ever made. Hello, Hannah. I was actually really nervous after hearing those massively glowing things. Like, what was I going to say about me? And you know what? I'll take it. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to What to Watch on Netflix. Thank you. How are you all holding up in lockdown? Clinging on, Dottie, with, with the fingertips. Not quite. Grateful to have an hour's respite from homeschooling. I, I kind of feel bad because I'm on my own here, just living this... Hashtag single life. I made, you know, I tied dyed some T-shirts the other day. It was great. Oh, how, how nice to have time to do things like that. Because I'll tell you what, with a three-year-old in the house, I would, 
I'd kill for some tie dye time. I just kill for right some tie dye. <laughs> I'll send you one. Give me a t-shirt. I'll send you one. <laughs> Guys, give me all your details. I'll post you. Please uh, do. Uh, now I'd love to talk about the state of cinema today because at the moment, at the time of recording, all the cinemas are still shut. Um, do you think cinema is ever going to really recover from this? Robbie, what are your thoughts? The whole of Hollywood, it kind of works in, in, in cycles. And I think that what's happened as a result of cinema's closing is that all of the big studios have effectively had to go without these, you know, multi-million profits for a spell of what? I mean, we're already talking about three months and it could be before things are even remotely back up to normal again in, in, in exhibition. It could be another six months. It could be another year. So so, so who can say? So, so all of these productions that they had spent an enormous amount of money on and were hoping to make an enormous amount of money back with have all been shelved. And so the industry has just kind of seized up with a few notable exceptions. And, and you know, of, of the studios, Universal is the one that's still been releasing stuff because they have this deal with Blumhouse, which is quite a, a reactive, cost-effective production company. You know, they make a lot of horror films, a lot of genre-based films, fairly cheaply. And it doesn't matter if necessarily every single one of those films hits big. That can cover the, the losses on, say, five or ten. Also, Netflix falls into the same boat because they're not producing these enormous blockbusters, but rather a kind of a steady supply of uh, low-to-mid-budget features that only have to kind of cumulatively turn a profit. You don't you don't necessarily stake the entire farm on every single release. So my suspicion is once we come out of lockdown and once this backlog of incredibly expensive films, you know, like Bond, like Tenet are finally released, we'll see a kind of a wholesale move to lower budget, mid-budget, more experimental more kind of conceptually ambitious, thematically ambitious movies uh, that studios have like since, really since the start of the century, have been very reluctant to make. I think um, it's been really interesting just in terms of the films that have either, that were on that kind of cusp of either they'd just been released just before lockdown or were about to be just released. And I think it's actually done them the world of good. It's done this, particularly this, area of kind of independent filmmaking, I guess, if it's under that bracket, things like Calm with Horses. Um, so I think that it's that that's one of the positives, I think, that's come out of it. There are certain films at the minute. It's just finding a way for that to continue, I think, once we get back to whatever normal is. I agree with both of you. I think what you've just said there, Edith, about um, people searching out for films they wouldn't normally watch. I mean, look at Curzon Home Cinema. That has seen a massive increase in the amount of people watching films, independent films on their platform. And it makes me think that maybe there's a way of kind of changing the way they people release their movies instead of, you know, we saw that when The Irishman came out, there was a release in cinemas. Maybe that's going to be the case a bit more, that we'll see these bigger platforms like, you know, like Netflix might actually start trying to draw people in on theatre and knowing that there's still a massive audience at home so we don't lose out on the cinema Cinema people going there as well. I mean, my biggest fear is that these smaller independent theatres are not going to recover. I mean, Sight and Sound did kind of interview quite a few of them and a lot of them, you know, one, one place usually makes like 30,000 in a month and that income's totally gone they don't even know if they're going to be able to keep it open for another month so that's the worry but yeah and like Robbie said I would love it if they started making you know the mid-level movies like a 20 million movie maybe they'll stop kind of spending 200 millions on these big reboots and franchises and start getting 10 movies out of that instead that are more diverse that tell more wide range of stories and are just original 
do you think our relationship with the cinema will change after this? Or do you think we will just rekindle that flame as soon as we're able to go back to the cinema? I would certainly like to rekindle the flame as soon as possible. And I think it, it's it's not... I'm happy to go back, you know, with the face mask on, with the social distancing, with a full hazmat suit if need be, because I want to enjoy that communal experience. You know, the, the, the funny thing about cinemas is they're not like gigs, you know, and they're not even like going to the theatre. You're not in this necessarily densely packed room where you're going to feel incredibly twitchy after the, you know, the first wave of the pandemic abates. There is normally a bit of space about you, and but the excitement of being there is feeling that connection across that space, you know, to someone that's sitting three rows away who starts laughing at the same time you laugh, or in a horror film where everyone holds their breath at once and you can feel the, the atmosphere in the room just suddenly tighten. I really miss that. And I've watched so many great films during lockdown, but I do miss that communal experience very much. What I would like to see cinemas become is this kind of premium option. So if you want to see a new film that you're incredibly excited about, you know, and you want to have that experience, you can choose to go to see it at your local independent cinema or at the multiplex and have, you know, the enormous screen and the, you know, umpteen channel Dolby surround sound. But if you can't make it, if you can't get a babysitter, you know, if, you, if you're taking a risk on the thing, you can also see it at home and you will have the home experience with all of the good and bad things that that entails. Do you remember a while ago there was talk of that screening room? There was that whole concept of like they were going to invest in this screening room where people could like have a platform and they would just do releases on that. And that was a couple of years ago. I remember speaking to like Hugh Jackman about it. And he was like, that's a really good idea because so many families, they can't get to the cinema or they can't afford the ticket prices. And it's interesting that now this pandemic has forced us to reassess those old ideas that seemed quite, oh, that's outlandish. We can't do that. That's going to ruin cinema. And actually now has made us realise, okay, but what is the point? We're trying to get people to connect through cinema, through films, through stories and if it means having to watch it at home so more people can see it I'd love to see that I want more as many eyes on it as possible cinemas are normally as well freezing so the idea of Covid virus surviving in the environment of a cinema is very unlikely that's, that's all they need to do is work out the temperature that the Covid doesn't survive and they just make the cinemas that temperature because they're, they're I'm normally freezing especially with like a lot of the big ones and stuff. I'll tell you as well what I've done a lot of is watching a lot of, of um, f films with my kids. So I've got uh, two boys who are seven and 12 today. And um, and it's quite interesting because there are films we can watch together and there are also films that the now 12-year-old, I want to introduce him to and I want to sit and I want him I wanted to watch particularly now and over the last few weeks and there are certain films that I that I'm determined that he has to watch to help educate him and help make him as good a person as he can possibly be um, and I think that that's something cinemas need to take on board as well is that it shouldn't always just be about the new big releases let's celebrate cinema let's have you know kind of older films shown to celebrate things in a kind of more cinema club type environment so that you are encouraging families and groups of people to come together to relive a special film in time or a moment you know I think that's something they should look at as well and of course there has been this argument around the artistic validity of streaming sites way before lockdown do you think our views have changed we've been forced to look at it with fresh eyes given the circumstances I mean to me it always comes down to the films themselves you know what kind of films are showing up on these on these services what films are the services investing in and 
you know, that's that's ultimately what it boils down to. I, th- I think if, if you look at the, some recent Netflix releases, like Uncut Gems, for example, the, the, the Safdie Brothers film, or even take it back to uh, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman last year, which was a perfect example of this. This was a film that Scorsese had shopped around the studios and none of the studios, because of the studio business model, where every single film has to be seen to, like if you make a big investment, that investment has to be seen to deliver a profit. Uh, they just weren't prepared to spend on the technology, you know, the, the, the de-aging technology that that film required in order to uh, to make it. But because the, the streaming format is completely different and you can, you're basically building a portfolio of films that's going to encourage people to uh, take out a subscription and then keep subscribing... If you spend, you know, whatever, what was the, the Irishman's budget? Was it 150 million or something? If you spend that much money on that one film, you don't have to say, ah, well, we pulled in this number of subscriptions, so therefore it was all worthwhile. You're just putting that forward to your your customers, your prospective customers as being, you know, this is one thing that you can enjoy in the service, as well as, you know, 20 seasons of Friends or whatever else people are sort of binge watching at the time. So you can get away with being a little bit more, in fact, a lot more daring. And this is another thing with, with Uncut Gems. You know, Uncut Gems for me, this, this Safety Brothers film about this diamond dealer uh, played by Adam Sandler. To me, this is one of the great films of the last 10 years. I think it is an extraordinary piece of work. But it's also, in its own way, it's not a difficult film, but it's a very abrasive film and a very grueling film to watch. It's so tense! It's, it's ridiculously tense. <laughs> if that was put out into cinemas... yeah. Word of mouth for that film would be fairly mixed because people would come out of it, I mean, yeah. feeling like they'd been sort of, you know, chased around a spike pit by lions. <laughs> but if you can put it on on, on streaming where it's, it's like less, you don't need everyone to discover it at once within two weeks before it's suddenly swept out for the next thing that's come along. People can organically discover that film. They can tell their friends about it. If you're a critic like me, if you've got a blog, if you've got a YouTube channel, whatever, you can you can sort of you know, lead people to this film over time. I told you about how things were going to go. You like the way things are going now? That's my family. Get the kids out of the house. I think it's getting that balance right, isn't it? Of like where, um, you know, Roma as well the year before, was that the year before, two years before? That idea that um, it's, it's making sure that there are certain films that do... They do want and they do they, they will flourish on having a cinematic release and there's there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that it's what is that kind of case by case basis, isn't it? Of the films that weren't being seen on a big screen that kind of uh, will, will benefit from that should have that opportunity to be for that to be the case. But then there are some that it, it, it would actually do it more good not. Do you think we are sort of reevaluating the artistic merit now of films that come from streaming platforms? Robbie, do you think we are looking at those as, as sort of top tier productions now? I had to wrestle with this a few years ago and it was it was when I was compiling a list of my 100 greatest films of all time for The Telegraph. And previously I'd, I'd been working under the assumption that in order to see a film properly, you have to have seen it in the cinema. Otherwise, you've, you've not had the full experience. But when I wrote up this list, I think I'd probably seen about maybe between a third and a half in the cinema and certainly most of them were all ones that I'd seen at home in the in the front room. And their kind of total, you know, masterpiece status hadn't been lost on me. And I didn't feel as if I'd, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd missed out in any way. So you, you have to kind of interrogate, you know, what are you actually getting out of these things? And I, I think it's it's very, very possible to 
to enjoy a film to to the fullest without necessarily having seen it projected. Um, I think it, it's just what we have to kind of wrap our heads around as well is that Netflix, you know, up until what, five, six years ago, wasn't making any films at all. And you can see over the course of the films that it was releasing, it actually started very strong. I think Beasts of No Nation was the first one, the Kari Fukunaga uh, war film set in West Africa, which was just sensational. All of you that have seen your family killed, you now have something that stands for you. It has put the weapons of this war back in the hands of you, the young, the powerful. You can see the Netflix approach at the start was always very, we'll let the directors do what they want. You know, we'll say, here's your budget. You know, we'll make sure we link you up with big stars and 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 you can basically just go away and, uh, and, and, and come back with what you come back with. And you can see that the early films, there were some that were just like... Uh, those are the ones that studios would have taken a very firm line with and said, look, we're giving you notes on this script. We're going to knock this into a more recognisable shape. And so you have some hits and you have some misses. But now I think the the company's really sort of got on top of what it's doing and it, it knows that you can give, uh, you know, creative freedom to... Um, to a director, to a, to, to, to a filmmaking team. But you can do that in constructive ways rather than just sort of handing them a blank check and saying, uh, you know, go away and come back with what you come back with. I think Defy Bloods, the, the new Spike Lee film, is a perfect example of this because, you know, this is as a result of Spike Lee having really, you know, roaringly returned to form with, with Chirac and then, and then especially Black Klansman a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, this is the time at which to hand this guy what, 30, 40 million to go and make his Vietnam movie. And so that's what Netflix did. And, and, and you know, the, the results, I think that film is absolutely tremendous. I think it's, and it's, 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 it's very, very singular. You know, it's the kind of film that was he to have been given that budget by a studio. I'm not sure he could have, he could have made it in the way he's made it. Black GI, is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused. And to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I always come to it, go back to that question you're asking, Dottie, about it doesn't, I, I, I don't really pay attention as to who's made the film, you know, whether it's, um, you know, an independent or whether it's Amazon or whether it's Netflix and stuff. It's got to be about the kind of the quality of the film, really. And it's not really, I, for me anyway, it's, it's, it doesn't, I don't, I don't care who's made it sort of thing in terms of where the money's come from. It's whether the, the director or the writer, they've been able to make the film that they wanted to make. And there's a truth in the storytelling. That for me is more important than, than who's made it, really. What about the industry, though? Do you think, uh, for example, with awards, traditionalists, have kind of been against films that have debuted on platforms being applicable. Do you think there's something in that in kind of not seeing the merit or is that just like the when the music industry was sort of scoffing at Napster and saying it was going to kill the business? I think that's true right up until the moment that one that someone who is skeptical about it makes a film for a streaming platform. And then they realise that maybe there is a yeah. bit of merit in it after yeah. all. You know, I mean, if, if you look at the the Academy, so in the, in, in the US, the, the people who are behind the Oscars, their entire board, I mean, loads of them have been involved with uh, with Netflix productions recently. You know, uh, Laura Dern, for example, she's, she's uh, part of the Academy's board and she was in Marriage Story the other year. And, you know, just a completely tremendous role. So I think the industry, as more people are doing work for, uh, you know, Amazon, Netflix, whoever... They're realizing that 
fundamentally, this work is no different to the work they're doing for other people. Also, streaming services are giving far more opportunities to diverse filmmakers. Like, you know, you've got things like Mudbound, you've got things like Roma, you've got all these stories that are being told that actually traditional, they don't really, studios haven't been making. We already know that like most of these Academy Awards and studios are kind of massively oversaturated with white men picking um, who gets to win stuff. So actually it's kind of like, maybe we should be taking from these uh, Netflix streams because they're ones who are nurturing new talent, giving them new opportunities. And to be honest, they're all making films, whether you see it on a screen or on your TV, it's fundamentally the same thing and the same amount of talent and expertise goes into making it. So I'm actually, I, I hate this kind of elitist attitude to it has to be there. As long as it's been released in the same right year of parameters, I'm saying everything should be considered. I think the festivals are need to play a bit catch up. I mean, I don't go to that many, but just in terms of sometimes the way the film festivals approach, you know, there's a, there's a, there seems to be from the outside anyway, a, a huge amount of snobbery around, you know, this kind of streaming services versus kind of theatrical release. I mean, Robin Hanna, you'll know more about that than I do, but from the outside looking in, it very much seems that's the case. This is a particular issue in France, because in France, there's, I think it's a law that if something is released in cinemas, it can't then be broadcast for another three years after its cinema release. And streaming counts as broadcast. So basically, for uh, any streaming platform to have made a film, there is no reason for them to release it in a cinema in France because they then just have to sit on it. You know, this, this thing that they spent a lot of money on, they have to sit on it for three years before they can put it on their own service. So this is a situation where the laws have to catch up. It's actually, it's different in uh, in Italy. And Venice has always been a huge booster for, for, for Netflix and Amazon since the very, you know, the very earliest days. Venice screened uh, A Beast of No Nation in competition when that was, when that was Netflix's first film. Uh, they had uh, Luca Guadagnino's uh, Suspiria the other year, which was a huge Amazon production. I just, I, I just don't understand this attitude. It's kind of, it's progress. It's 2020. It's been a really batshit year, but also like, can we just move on and kind of stop, stop being stuck in our ways and accept that we are now in a world that's technologically advanced? Like, I get it. You still want to shoot a film. You do that. But also, like, you can still shoot on 3D or digital. You know, there's all these advances that are helping, helping people to make much better films. You know, we can live in kind of harmony if we're just not, I suppose, just narrow-minded about so many things. You know, we're all a lovely world. We all love film. Let's all make it together. I sound like that kid in Mean Girls who's like, I want to paint a rainbow. Well, Hannah, you, you kind of mentioned uh, the, the progress and, and moving forward. Well, thanks to lockdown, everyone is able to, to take part this year in, in award ceremony. And we're told uh, it's for one year only. How true do you think that is? Um, yeah, I think, I don't think... I feel like once you open that can of worms, it's like oh, you put the tooth, you can't get the toothpaste back in. I just don't understand how you can just go back and say, sorry, yeah, sorry, you've made these great films. You won last year, but you can't get nominated again. It just goes back to the same thing of what I believe. I think it's kind of elitist. I think it's, you're, you're fundamentally putting the same production effort. You have the same hairstylists, same cinematographers, same directors, producers, actors. They're all creating the same thing um, so I don't really understand why why there's such an issue where you're celebrating the talent. You're not celebrating the way it's released. You're celebrating the products that's been made, the content that's been made. So, yeah, I, I'm just I would be I'll be on the picket line. <laughs> <laughs> Edith, what's your take on on that? Well, with regards to the where the, with the awards side of things, yes, and and kind of it, it being open for a year. I mean, 
Yeah, it's it's it is. It's going to be tricky. I also think it's going to be tricky going back. But then it's also kind of you know if you think about this time frame of when no films have been made because productions have shut down, it's going to mean that come a year's time, there is going to be a smaller number of things to to judge it on as well. So I, yeah, it's it's. I wouldn't want to be the person making that decision to be honest. Um, but I mean. Unless you're Tom Cruise, who apparently is kind of, you know, he's got his own COVID-free village on the go where he's still, you know, the Mission Impossible. I mean, he's living life, you know, life and art is a very fine line for, for TC. So it's kind of, you know, yeah, TC to win it all for, in my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they'll do a category, special cut, like they'll do like yeah. the best COVID, COVID content. Survival, like the best COVID, COVID content. Yeah. I mean, that would be quite interesting. But what's, what's kind of weird about this is Hollywood has, not with a pandemic in mind by any stretch of the imagination, but they have in their own way been working towards this sort of uh, pandemic compatible production method over the last few years. If you look at virtual productions like Disney's The Lion King, which is, you know, it was shot on this virtual space or something like The Mandalorian. I don't know if you've seen how The Mandalorian is shot, but it's- oh You've been watching the galleries. They're I'm so afraid, good. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. Oh, they're so the good. There's an enormous kind of oval screen that you stand in the middle of. And, you know, you can shoot in any direction. And as the camera moves, the screen is this kind of live backdrop. And I, I mean, I just assumed they were shooting the Mandalorian in the middle of the desert, but apparently not. It was all in Los Angeles with this kind of fake circular desert round on every side. So, you know, the industry has, it can, it can do it. It can adapt. And also the, the pandemic is not, you know, however bad it is, it's not going to rage on forever. There will be a time, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, when people can get back out and do these big uh, big location shoots. But there are there are different approaches that they can take. Edith, do you think we're uh, we're more critical of of films that we watch on streaming sites? I I remember trying to watch uh, Six Underground on Netflix with with my wife and about 7 minutes in she was like I'm not having this. Um and I was like if if we were in a cinema you would you'd watch it with me to the end. Do you think we are we're just we have tougher criteria when we're watching at home and can just switch off. It's just you've got more more distractions, haven't you? It's like we've been diving into some old films with the kids. Like we watched the Truman Show with them a couple of weeks ago, which was an amazing experience, actually. My six, uh, seven-year-old at the end of it was like, is there another one? Because he was like absolutely captivated <laughs> by this <laughs> sequel. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. But it, it's that thing where if either of them are... It's really funny. My older kid, sort of, when he knows there's going to be um, conflict in any way, like not not kind of physical conflict, but but kind of emotional conflict, it kind of really irritates him. So he'll like he'll shoot off out the room for two minutes. So in the cinema, he wouldn't do that. But he, you know, at home, it's like oh, I'm just going to go to the toilet, or I'm just going to go and get some popcorn. You know, it's that thing. We've got so many distractions. It's not like we can kind of lock ourselves in a room that you can't leave when a film's on. So I think that you have oh, there's one of them now popping in. Hey, Spike. Um, uh, yeah, really, it's, I think that that's the easier thing. Hannah, what about you? Do you think you've got a different relationship with a film when you're watching it at home? Yeah, 100%. Um, I'm an awful millennial because um, when I'm in a cinema, I'm one of these people who's like, yeah. turn your phone off, get your phone, turn your phone off. And then when I'm at home, 
I have to like keep it in another room if I'm watching a movie because I'm so easily just grabbing it, going on Twitter or something like that, and then I end up like having to rewind the rewind the film and stuff. So that I'm terrible for that. I'm trying to get. I suppose sometimes it's hard. If, you know, if you're watching something, maybe you're watching something on normal TV and everyone's watching it. So you kind of do a watch along. You might tweet along. You know what's going on as it happens. But you know, I have to really kind of train myself, um, especially as I'm on my own. So it's like the only communication I have is someone I'm tweeting. Um, so it's like trying to figure that out, but also, you know, there is so much choice out there and you're not just, I I don't, I'm not, I don't subscribe to the idea that you should stay watching something if you're thoroughly not enjoying it, especially at home. Now, obviously if you spent the money at the cinema, maybe stay. I mean, I've walked out of two films in my life, Honey 2 and The Tree of Life. Two peas in a pod, really. I stand by those choices. (laughs) 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 And, um... (laughs) But um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's some films that I've watched at home and I just thought I could watch this for two hours or I could just turn it off and do something else. Or, you know, like there's 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 far too little time for you to watch things that you're really not enjoying. Now, I definitely think you shouldn't turn off after two minutes, at least give it a good like 15 minutes before you've kind of decided, no, I'm out. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I feel about that. Can I ask during the Tree of Life? What part did you... I mean, did you stay for the dinosaurs? No. And now I wish I had. Oh, I you, I said, oh, you know what? I haven't watched it since, Robbie. Should I watch okay. it in lockdown and then also live tweet it? <laughs> of course. And I think there's even there's even a longer director's cut of it available now. Possible? So maybe you've done the right <laughs> wow. thing. Now you can experience it as Malachi Why would you? Intended. Why would you make it? <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about um, Netflix films that you have all watched to the end. I'd love to get a, a, a film recommendation from all of you. Well, I really like the The Five Bloods. I watched that yesterday, and that was like just so visceral and so emotional. And um, I mean, that's Spike Lee's coming back. He's about five um, for um, uh, Vietnam sold black Vietnam soldiers who were in the war together and come back, and they're trying to find some gold that was they hid last time they were there. Um, and it kind of goes back and forth in time to their experience in the war, but then also them trying to go on this kind of adventure journey to find it. Gentlemen, welcome back to Vietnam. Look at that found. Dirty man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. I really love... Spike's way of telling stories. I love the way he does these, like, kind of looks to camera. He has people talking to camera. I like the his in he interspersed like pictures and imagery. I mean, some of it's really shocking, kind of to see. Actually, I mean, there's the one shot in there that I had to like. I kind of held my breath for because it was real footage. He uses real footage as well from Vietnam, um, and what's going on. And I just they just it just got it just really got to me on a very kind of deep level and also in lockdown i've been rewatch i'm watching the wire for the first time so i'm like Le- I'm like Lester Freeman. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> so it's been really good. Like, as I went, Lock Junior's in there. It's like I don't want to spoil there it. Is, there's I a just... completely blatant shout out to the wire. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, think he's it's, contractually it's a... obliged now to to do a he. <laughs> a certain expletive like... is is is. is... <laughs> heavily drawn out <laughs> shall we say but yeah goodness it's such an amazing like cineliterate movie it's, it, it, it riffs so much on the treasure of the Sierra Madre as well the, uh, the old John Houston film where you have the, the guys going off in the desert to find the cache of gold there and there's a great moment where this Vietnamese bandit says it's not word for word but it's like badges 
we don't need no stinking badges. And you're like, yep, Spike, I see, yep, see what you did would, there. Would the Five Bloods be your recommendation as well, though, Robbie? I mean, I would say definitely watch it. I, I find it really in, in, incredibly exciting and moving. And it's, it's so, as well, it's, it feels kind of cheap to say it's a film that we need to watch right now. But there's, there's certain protest-based montages that chime so kind of keenly with what is going on, uh, you know, on the streets of our cities at this very moment. It's so odd because it was supposed to premiere at Cannes this May before the festival was cancelled. And I remember thinking, you know, oh, the, you know, this, this film's kind of missed out on its moment. And it, the, the exact opposite has happened. The moment has kind of risen up to meet it. So it's, uh, it's definitely, definitely one to watch. I mean, I would say one of a, a great Netflix film from a couple of years ago that I don't think ever got the attention it should have done was Tamara Jenkins' Private Life which is about this childless New York couple played by Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti who uh, undergo fertility treatment and explore perhaps adopting a kid as well. Your best chance for success is with the donor egg. He's out of his mind. There's a lot of positives. Oh, it's easy for you to say. You'll have your genetic contribution. And me, I'm just left out. Don't even... It's just a beautifully observed relationship drama, incredibly uh, well played. Particularly, by, I mean, if you're if you're someone like me who has adored Catherine Han for years and years and years in broadly comic roles and, and more dramatic ones alike, in this one she kind of gets to do uh, everything because there's a certain there's a certain absurdity to fertility and discussing fertility openly with complete strangers and undergoing these kind of weird rituals and you know sterile rooms at doctors surgeries and things um that this film kind of nails the comedic strangeness of this but also the you know the incredibly sort of heartfelt bittersweet side to it as well you know you want to you want to have a kid you want to raise a kid you want to keep keep things going for you know for a time when you're no longer on earth yourself and it was just one of those films that everyone i've spoken to who has seen it has adored it wow i mean i would subscribe to a streaming service of you <laughs> just explaining films <laughs> There you go. Well, I'll take that. I'm not. I'm not saying I'd pay nine ninety nine a month, but I would subscribe. <laughs> Edith, I'd love to get your uh, film recommendation. Uh, do you know what I watched again? I was I was doing some prep for uh, an interview. I don't know if anybody watched Devs that was on um, uh, another another channel. Um, but I'm I'm a big fan of Alex oh, Garland, yeah. and I'm a big fan of Jeff um, Barrow and Ben Salisbury who do the music with him. So I went back and watched Alex's um, Ex Machina or Ex Machina, however you want to say it. Um, and I just think that's a, a fantastic film. Um, I've seen it about five times now, but I just think it's extraordinary. It's such a great film. Over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossils. What will happen to me if I fail your test? The amount of times as well I've just gone on to YouTube to watch the Oscar Isaac dance section from that film as well is just... (laughs) It's unhealthy, really. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. And where you mentioned marriage story um, earlier, which, you know, being married, it's a kind of, it's a it's a tough watch sometimes. But um, I, I watched that again just because I I loved it. I thought it was great. And I wish it had done, I wish it had kind of got more recognition. I know it was nominated and stuff for awards and things, but I just thought it deserved to win a lot more. I thought it was brilliant. 
I'll never get to really be his parent again. He needs to know that I fought for him. You remind me of myself on my second marriage. It's not as simple as not being in love anymore. Eventually, it'll be the two of you having to figure this out together. Did you watch it with your husband? No. Yeah, I always say, don't watch that, don't watch that with the spouse. There's a lot of side-eye. We had this moment watching Marriage Story, you know that brilliant intro where they both write these letters about each other. And as Scarlett Johansson was describing Adam Driver in that opening, my wife turned to me and said, oh, he's just like you. And I was like, Uh-oh. don't say that. Just wait, <laughs> wait, oh, wait, wait Adam a minute. Adam Driver's doing that musical number as well. It's like being alive oh. is just, oh, my God. I know. Oh. Brutal. Oh, I mean, God. just one of, one, of, one of the kind of great scenes that is sort of inexplicable in anything other than purely cinematic terms. Like, why, why should that be as moving and as powerful and as funny as it is? Just a guy standing up in a bar and singing Sondheim, you know. When I do it, it's not moving. <laughs> the man can do no wrong. Then he, turn, then he can be Kylo Ren, you know, in the flick of a black cloak. It's amazing. Oh, guys, <laughs> thank you so much for your Netflix recommendations and thank you for joining me on this film special of What to Watch on Netflix. Can I give a quick shout out for one quick thing, Dottie, as well? Hit me. Um, the 13th, the Ava documentary, which I think is absolutely amazing. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution makes it unconstitutional to be held as a slave. Except for criminals. We now have more African-Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves back in the 1850s. You know, I'm doing homeschooling with my kids as well. And this is the type of thing that I think it should be part of the curriculum because it joins Absolutely. the dots in terms of, you know, particularly American society. But I think there, there needs to be a, an equivalent made by someone in, in, in terms of the history within the UK um, for, for, for black lives and, and how, how, how the struggles that it is, what is what it's been for people because I think that the way that Ava has pieced together all these different movements and the the constant the constant shift in government to it's just disgusting it's absolutely appalling and I was just flummoxed by the end of this this film and absolutely overwhelmed by how brilliant it was and I think that it's something that should be part of the curriculum and I think we need a British equivalent as well that should be part of the British equivalent go and watch it it's fantastic. That is a, a great shout for anybody wanting to sort of contextualise the conversation around systemic racism. 13th is yeah. absolutely a, a must watch. So thank you so much, Edith. And thank you, Robbie and Hannah. Thanks, Dottie. Take thank care. You. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you to my guests, Robbie, Hannah and Edith. But it wouldn't be an episode of What to Watch on Netflix without the gift of our resident Netflix TV guide, Gina. Hello, how are you? I'm so well. Gina, what should we be watching this weekend? Okay, since you guys have covered a lot of the great movies you can watch on Netflix, I figured I would give you some of the licensed movies you can watch on Netflix too. So first and foremost, from today, we have all of the Jurassic Park movies in the franchise. That's all five films. So if you're looking to have a laid-back weekend with a friend or a partner, chill out. Watch all five movies in one go, I 100% recommend. If not, you can also watch two movies from one of my favourite filmmakers, Christopher Nolan. And we have Dunkirk on the surface and Inception. Inception is my second favourite film after Sister Act, just saying. And also if you have great taste and you're a fan of Beyonce, we now have 
three titles pertaining to Beyonce. We have, of course, the Homecoming Doc, but not just that. We have two films that Beyonce's in. We have Dreamgirls, a fantastic 10 out of 10 film. I will not take any other opinion than that. And we also have Obsession, starring Beyonce and Idris Elba, which is, if you've never heard of it, it's a very crazy film. Basically, someone's trying to take someone else's man and it's really wild and then there's all these arguments and then there's a fight. It's amazing. You should 100% give it a try this weekend. That's all I have for you today. See you next week. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Gina, and thank you for listening. From film, which is something we can enjoy from the comfort of our homes, to something next week that we haven't been able to do for months, it's the sports episode of What to Watch on Netflix. I'll see you there. What to Watch on Netflix is hosted by me, Dottie, and is written and produced by Jamie East. Editing and additional production comes from Cup and Nuzzle. What are you watching on Netflix? We'd love to know. Get in touch with us on Twitter at Netflix UK. 